When celebrities publicly talk about their pro-life beliefs, they're ridiculed, ostracized, or marginalized to the degree that the power elites can make them less important. When politicians stand for life and emphasize care for women and their babies instead of abortion promotion, they're not only marginalized in the Democratic Party, they're usually, eventually, driven from office. Why does the abortion lobby and industry still have such power and influence? What do average Americans believe about abortion as best as we can know? I'm Sheila Lagminas. You're in the Forum. Here with some answers to those questions is my guest, Professor Michael New, visiting Assistant Professor of Social Research and Political Science at the Catholic University of America, and also Associate Scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute in Washington, D.C. Professor New, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in on this show in the forum. It's the forum of ideas. And yet, Professor New, we don't get to uh, engage in these debates publicly very often because abortion is such a divisive issue, among other divisive issues. And and here we are all these decades after Roe v. Wade. Does it seem to you, uh, with all the research you do on polls, and we'll get into those polls in a minute, that the, uh, I know from your writing, but tell our listeners that it that it does seem the pro-life movement is gaining great ground while michael the pro-abortion the abortion lobby big abortion whatever it's called is still holding their ground is that the case i think that that's certainly the case i think that uh, the pro-life movement has certainly made some uh, impressive gains in the court of public opinion i mean the polls that i often like to cite come from gallup and gallup for many many years has been asking people whether or not they identify as either pro-life or pro-choice. And polls taken as recently as 1995 indicate that only 33% of people identified as pro-life, again, back in the mid-1990s. Uh, nowadays, pro-life self-identification is in the mid to high 40s. I think the most recent Gallup poll indicated that 47% of Americans identify as pro-life. So uh, the pro-life position has made some gains. Again, it's been 14 percentage points in about a 25-year time span. And it's been pretty durable. I mean, in fact, we even had a majority identify as pro-life in both 2009 and 2012. So certainly there have been some gains made in the court of public opinion. Uh, unfortunately, our opponents, I think, are uh, becoming more radical, uh, even though um, you know, there have been pro-life gains in the court of public opinion. I think the Democratic Party has really shifted to the left on this issue. Uh, I think that uh, a generation of Democrats that was economically you know, liberal but socially conservative has more or less passed away. They're being replaced by a younger generation uh, that's a lot more liberal, a lot more aggressive on these issues. And that's why you see a lot of Democrats, uh, say, opposing the Hyde Amendment and supporting the use of taxpayer dollars to fund elective abortions for women on Medicaid. So, again, I think both of those statements are, are true. So, so talk about that last part of what you said. Talk about that for a moment, because as I understand from a lot of a lot of news gathering, commentary, analyses that I've been reading, Michael, especially in this election cycle, uh, I've been reading that the, the younger voters or the younger citizens of our country who are engaged, who are paying attention, who are actually a- actively out there doing things to make a difference are very concerned, as these articles put it, with social justice. I mean, they're concerned with with what's you know right for people in terms of human rights and so forth. We can see that play out in any number of ways, but why is it that it, when in, in the field 
of abortion, which, which is our topic, because without human life, there are no other rights you can coherently make an argument for, none. Um, so why, why would they not be more pro-life? I mean, they've, they've lost any number of their own peers to abortion. Why, why are younger people buying into this ideology still? That's really hard to say. I mean, uh, first, I think you know, a lot of young people are pro-life. Um, just the people you see on TV and the people who are featured at the Democratic Convention don't necessarily represent everybody. And we do have data from some polls indicating that younger people are more sympathetic to the pro-life message. Uh, there's a group called the, there's a you know, group that does something called the General Social Survey every two years. And they've been asking these same six questions about abortion every year since the early 70s. And mm-hmm. that's probably the best long-term data we have on public mm-hmm. opinion trends toward abortion. And when they conduct these polls in the 70s, they found that young adults, ages 18 to 29, were the group most sympathetic to legal abortion. Uh, starting around 2000, mm-hmm. it started to flip. Uh, young adults actually, you know, at one point were the age demographic most opposed. Uh, now, these questions are kind of interesting. They t- tend to ask about circumstances where abortion should be legal, should be legal for women's low income, should be legal for women's raped, should be legal if she's uh, married and doesn't want to marry the man. So they kind of ask about circumstances. And when they kind of brought up these individual circumstances, you know, young adults tend to be uh, fairly opposed to abortion in, uh, in a lot of them. So uh, again, I do think that uh, we have made some gains amongst uh, young adults. Uh, obviously, uh, not everybody. Uh, there mm-hmm. are many young people that support legal abortion. Uh, but again, in the uh, 70s and into the 80s, you saw big generation gaps uh, as far as public attitudes on abortion. And those gaps have shrunk quite a bit. And again, some polls even show that young adults uh, are very sympathetic to the pro-life message. I think there's other polls that show that when you look at uh, polling on incremental pro-life laws, like mm-hmm. waiting periods, parental involvement laws, bans on abortions after 20 weeks, young people tend to be more supportive of these incremental laws than older folks. So again, we have made some ground amongst the, you made some progress uh, engaging uh, the young. In, excuse me. In fact, speaking of the young, talk about that. That's the per- perfect lead in to what's going on with Students for Life of America. Their ranks are growing across the country on campuses, even even I believe in high schools. But I know on campuses, Students for Life of America are very engaged. And at the same time, Michael, they're they're facing really, really not only strong headwinds, but a lot of uh, wrath of the pro-abortion folks who um, are actually assaulting them, pelting them with things and, and verbally assaulting them and very hostile to them. What's, what's some recent news you've got on that? Well, several things. I think Students for Life of America does some great work organizing and recruiting uh, pro-life students on college campuses. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know one thing that they've always been very helpful to me, I know that uh, you know when I was in college in the mid-1990s, um, colleges and universities, or at least the pro-life movement, I should say, didn't really invest a lot in youth outreach. And my writing and research started getting some attention uh, around 2004. I got to meet with a lot of pro-life leadership in this country. And um, you know, one thing I always told every time I had a meeting, I always told them, you know, invest more in youth outreach, invest more in youth outreach. And a lot of these folks, it's a great idea. You know, I can't raise money off it. It's not what my group does. Um, and they, uh, you know, didn't really... Uh, pursue that. Uh, but Students for Life really got some funding around 2006, 2007, and you know, everywhere I've been, University of Alabama, Michigan, Dearborn, Ave Maria, Catholic University, they've done a great job uh, in terms of getting people to college campuses, organizing, recruiting pro-life students, giving them some resources, organizing events. They do a great conference uh, the, week, the weekend of the March for Life. It's great mm-hmm. 
to see 2,000 young people there, excited, engaged about sanctity life issues. And as I always tell people, you know, the cavalry is in fact coming up behind us. So, um, you know, that, that's a reason for, for hope there. Now we had some of excitement in Washington, D.C., as many of your listeners probably have heard, that uh, I, along with several other people, uh, organized a team of people to go uh, pray outside the Washington, D.C. Planned Parenthood on Saturday mornings. We sidewalk console, we approach abortion-minded women, and we try to offer them some alternatives. Uh, Students for Life wanted to join us back on August 1st. They wanted to do some pro-life street art. They wanted to paint some pro-life messages in front of the D.C. Planned Parenthood. They were in touch with D.C. city government. They thought they had the uh, ability to go ahead and, and move forward. Uh, they showed up that morning. They were greeted by about six police cars who said that, no, they could not paint. Wow. So then Students for Life said, okay, can we chalk pro-life messages? And people chalk all the time. Right. We have chalk pro-life messages. It's not permanent. Water washes it away. It, um, you know, <laughs> we're not causing any kind of permanent damage or permanent change to uh, you know, the sidewalk or the street. But to our surprise, they said, no, the students couldn't even chalk a pro-life message. So uh, two students, uh, or actually two people, one uh, warned a priest who is uh, with our uh, sidewalk counseling team. He chalked a pro-life message along with a student uh, named Erica from Towson University. I think her name is Erica Caproletti. And uh, they both chalked pro-life messages and were promptly arrested uh, by D.C. police. And it was just you know outrageous. I mean, this is just free speech. People chalk all kinds of right. things. People have chalked all kinds of slogans involving you know Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And as I said, you know, afterwards, uh, I just think it's pretty outrageous that during a pandemic and rising crime rates and civil unrest, the top priority of DCC government appears to be keeping people safe from pro-life street art. Wow. You know, and meanwhile, I mean, curb to curb on, on some of those streets, as you said, I don't even know if it's paint or what, what it is, but in big yellow letters, we all know in different cities, including D.C., it has been painted or more than chalked a uh, Black Lives Matter during these these weeks or months of protests. And yet uh, people need to be kept free from pro-life ideas. So th- that's certainly um, not only an ideological message that's being pushed. One is pushed um elevated and the other one is silenced or all but silenced to talk about the members of congress who stepped in on that uh, right that you've uh, two members of congress uh, one of whom is uh, jim jordan who is the ranking republican on the house judiciary committee uh, he along with another member of congress have actually requested uh, some more information about these arrests uh, they've written to the attorney general uh, wanting to know if there's uh, evidence of viewpoint discrimination in the nation's capital, uh, that uh, D.C. police have not, insofar as we know, arrested or even warned anybody who was engaging in chalking the sidewalk. And they've also contacted the mayor's office, and they wanted all communications involving the mayor's office that involved uh, the arrest of these two individuals on August 1st. So I think they want to have a briefing either at the end of August or very late September. So we'll keep an eye on this. I'm glad that members of Congress are paying attention to this. I appreciate the leadership of Congress and Jordan on this. I think it'll be very interesting to see, uh, you know, what they find. You know, we do know that Mayor Bowser is very friendly with Planned Parenthood. Uh, She was a guest of honor when they opened up a new facility a few years ago. I think the the uh, director of the D.C. Planned Parenthood, worked on Mayor Bowser's staff at one point. So we know there is a, a chummy relationship between Mayor Bowser and Planned Parenthood. And I'll be curious to see what uh, this investigation uh, brings forward. You know, speaking of investigations, Michael, that converges two things. One, I wrote a blog post this week on on David Delayden, his years now in court, in and out of courts. 
having been sued for those undercover videos that revealed so much about trafficking in or marketing of baby body parts from abortion clinics with Planned Parenthood staffers being involved. And had that not been on a video, it might not have been believed. I mean, it's just so gruesome. And, and yet it was, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it was out there for everyone to see, including members of Congress. So there was one, you, um, you know, I'm telling listeners, you know, just to refresh, there was one hearing in the House and one in the Senate over what to do about this and whether there are actually uh, criminalities involved, whether there, there are laws broken. And, and yet, you know, the, the, the hearings on defunding of Planned Parenthood never seem to result in the defunding of Planned Parenthood. And meanwhile, David Daleiden, the citizen journalist who did those undercover videos, got uh, quickly, uh, of course, sued by Planned Parenthood. But that was back when, when Kamala Harris was Attorney General of California and her successor, Javier Becerra, took over that, that ongoing case, that prosecution of David Daleiden. But, but a couple of things converge here. One of them is where that case stands, the fact that David is, is in court fighting for his freedom and the ability to get the remaining videos out and because his house was raided. I mean, the Department of Justice in California raided his house. So on, on that highest level of, of the party, and now she's the, the, the vice presidential uh, candidate for the Democratic Party, what, what about, the, I mean, why not an accounting for that? Because she, she has been, as been claimed by Thomas More Society representing David, David July and the legal, the legal firm, that her part, that her um, race or campaign, as well as her successors, Javier Becerra, was funded by Planned Parenthood. And that they're certainly in, in uh, unison because she has, they said, met when she was a, a California attorney general behind closed doors in those proceedings against David Daleiden with Planned Parenthood, which seems almost kind of against um, the rules. But anyway, what, what about that highest level of support for Planned Parenthood? Is it something that, that politicians on that high a level feel they have to continue forward with? Do you think they just in their bones or whatever believe it's right or, or what? I think that there's several things that work here. I mean, first off, Planned Parenthood uh, and other supporters of legal abortion put a lot of money into campaigns. Uh, they invest yeah. very heavily in the Democratic Party. Uh, if you notice, Democrats often will compromise on, on some issues just because uh, on those other issues, there's not necessarily a lot of financial benefit. Uh, for instance, uh, Democrats sometimes don't always uh, push gun control. Why? Uh, the gun control groups don't really have as much money or resources as the NRA. So uh, when it's politically useful, Democrats mm. will support gun control, uh, but you know they typically won't, won't push the issue. When it comes to abortion, yeah, Planned Parenthood, Emily's List, NARAL, uh, these groups invest very, very heavily. And uh, you know Democrats are kind of all too happy to you know, do what these groups want. And that does include you know, prosecuting citizen journalists like David Delide. I mean, I thought it was very telling. I mean, David Delide did some outstanding cover work exposing all kinds of misconduct found that Planned Parenthood employees uh you know were frankly selling fetal body parts and instead of going after uh Planned Parenthood employees and Planned Parenthood who engaged in this misconduct uh Kamala Harris instead decides to prosecute David Daleiden the person who exposed this misconduct and I thought that was just extremely telling mm -hmm. so I think it's partly the money that Planned Parenthood puts in uh partly also just the fact that again even though uh, we've made some gains in the court public opinion. The Democratic Party has shifted far to the left on a lot of these issues. 
uh, that there's lots of donors and activists who do support legal abortion and lots of political figures want to reach out and engage these activists a bit. And one way they can do so is frankly by taking a, a strong stance in favor of legal abortion and finding ways to harass pro-lifers like David Elyden. So I think those uh-huh. are several reasons. Yeah, they've, it's an actual threat to his very freedom and and, uh, and much more. The, the, the incredible amount of sums of money he's got to come up with for all of the legal defense. Mm-hmm. But that's an ongoing thing. He's still fighting. In fact, he's just recently sued uh, Kamala Harris, who, again, back when she was attorney general of California, it was actions taken then. And he also sued Javier Becerra, her successor. So that's an ongoing case. It's in courts. And we'll we'll continue to cover that as it plays out. But Speaking of the the party affiliations, it's, of course, the Democratic Party, who we have far more pro-lifers in the Republican Party. But sadly, one of the last remaining standing well-known Democrats in the House, uh, Congressman Dan Lipinski, as you know, and a lot of our listeners may or may not know, was uh, lost his last election to his opponent in the Democratic Party because so much money was put behind her. For the the last time around, this happened as well, and Congressman Lipinski barely hung on to his seat, but he did. This time he lost in the primary. So they're trying to drive every remaining Democrat for life out of the party. But speaking of that, Michael, you've written about the fact that there, there, there is an organization called Democrats for Life, which we've covered before, but that ahead of this Democratic National Con- uh, Convention that just took place, the, the Democrats for Life released a letter asking their the DNC platform committee to adopt more inclusive language on sanctity of life issues. What became of that? That's interesting. I mean, Democrats for Life has been you know very active this election cycle. Uh, they've done a couple of good things. They've uh, released a letter first, one letter signed by over 100 religious leaders asking for the Democratic Party to change their platform on sanctity of life issues. And then uh, last week um, or two weeks ago. Uh, they released uh, another letter, and uh, this letter was signed by over 100 former and current Democratic elected officials, including Dan Lipinski, including the current governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, uh, essentially asking the Democratic Party to adopt more inclusive language in their platform regarding sanctity of life issues. They weren't really even asking the Democrats to really change their platform as such. They always you know, had language in their platform up until I think around 2000, which acknowledged that abortion was a difficult issue and acknowledged the, the goodwill of um, people who opposed abortion and made it clear that pro-lifers were welcome to take part in the Democratic Party. That mm-hmm. language has since been removed. And mm-hmm. again, they put together a letter asking that language just to be reinserted, not changing public policy, but just kind of extending an olive branch to pro-life Democrats, and I don't think anything really came of it. I think the platform committee uh, just, just chose to ignore them. Uh, Democrat wow. Life did a very nice online kind of virtual caucus. Uh, they couldn't even get like an official meeting uh, during the Democratic convention, so they did their own kind of unofficial meeting that was online. Good Over 100 people logged on. Uh, they had some very good speakers, including Congressman Lipinski, uh, Katrina Jackson-Lee, mm-hmm. uh, the woman, the state, legislator, the state legislator from uh, Louisiana, right? I should say uh, Katrina Jackson, again, there's no, no surname there. Katrina Jackson, the uh, state legislator uh, from uh, Louisiana who uh, sponsored the piece of legislation that the Supreme, Court, the Supreme Court heard in June Medical Services v. Russo. She was on the conference call and she was very clear. She said the Democratic Party cannot continue to ignore us. And you know she's correct. So they had a nice online event. Uh, they are helping uh, pro-life Democrats in local races. And again, I think that uh, they're doing some impressive work uh, I was happy to go onto social media and promote what they were doing. Uh, I'm not a Democrat, uh, but I think what they're doing is important. Uh, my goal someday 
instead of two pro-life parties competing with each other to see who can do the most to protect the unborn. And I think, again, we should just applaud the steps that Democrats for Life is, is taking. Oh, absolutely. And help them uh, build up their ranks. So the more we spread awareness that they're there and, and, and connections to them, the, the more people can can take that can take that uh, recourse. And, and especially our voters across the country. We'll get back to that in a moment, what people across the country of either party or maybe they're unaffiliated right now. But what most Americans think, I want to get to that as well. But while you while you mentioned the Louisiana case in the Supreme Court, June Medical Services is what it's known by. You did some important writing on that. And down the article, um, what media didn't tell you about June Medical Service v, Services v. Russo, that's the Louisiana abortion uh, case, which merely and reasonably uh, the Louisiana law had it that I think every 51 of the 50 states should have this while abortion is still legal. Doctors in clinics who do abortion should have uh, admitting privileges to at a nearby hospital. That is so reasonable, like every other reasonable uh, law referring to abortion, like parental notification and others. But anyway, that that got ruled on not the way pro-lifers expected or hoped for in the Supreme Court, thanks to the swing vote of Chief Justice Roberts. Michael, you make the point at the bottom of your article what media did not tell you about June Medical Services v. Russo. You said this, overall, relatively few people read Supreme Court opinions. True. Uh, you said most citizens are largely dependent on the mainstream media to both report on and explain Supreme Court rulings. Well, that's true. And I shook my head and thought, I've got I've to bring that up to you because if, if people are relying on what they hear in media, they're not going to hear about these things. So you, we need to hear it from you. Right. I think that, you know, the media is just kind of very good at giving doing some kind of quick spin on things and you know, mm. they may report on what the decision was. Uh, but I think you know, a lot can be gained by actually sifting through the opinions of the justices, uh, especially the dissenting opinions, which I thought were well done and I think mm -hmm. uh, powerfully written. And I think that um, you know, there are several things that the, the media missed here. I mean, it seemed that the coverage of this decision just said that, well, the Supreme Court already heard about a Texas case involving clinic regulations, and they struck down those regulations, and the Louisiana regulations were similar to the Texas regulations, so they were struck down too. But there were some differences. Uh, mm -hmm. First off, the Texas regulations were in effect for a while. Uh, you know, that there was evidence that, you know, abortion facilities did close down in Texas as a result. Now, I don't think that's a reason to strike down the regulations, uh, but I think it, there is an important difference here because in Louisiana, the regulations were really never in effect for any extended period of time. So we really don't know what impact they would have had. Uh, I think that's an important distinction. Another important distinction is that um, we don't really know whether or not Louisiana abortion doctors could have gotten hospital admitting privileges. I mean, they did make some effort, but you know, they, it seems that a lot of these efforts were fairly perfunctory. You know, sometimes they didn't mm. follow up. Sometimes they didn't submit multiple applications. Mm. So again, there were some important distinctions between you know, Louisiana and Texas. Another important thing is that, you know, Louisiana state legislature, you know, I think did have hearings on these regulations. And, you know, I think as some of the justice pointed out, there was evidence presented about health benefits of these clinic regulations. So, you know, that was something I think that's important to consider as, as well. So again, I think that there were a lot of differences. I think the Supreme Court could have, you know, upheld these clinic regulations in Louisiana in a way that was consistent with the precedent from the Texas case. I mean, I think the Texas case was wrongly decided, but it wasn't a carbon copy. Uh, there were some differences, you know, that involved the Louisiana case, uh, but the media didn't bother to report on much, much of any of this. And what was interesting is, again, some of the judges even did mention 
the misconduct that took place in Louisiana abortion clinics. They, they didn't talk about women who, who were expelled from the clinic while hemorrhaging. They didn't talk about, you know, other things that had gone wrong. Again, this was all in the opinions, but the mainstream media, by and large, did not report on it. Well, well, and this is something we were used to over all these years, but there are more pro-life media and there are more media willing to report on that and thoroughly and not use that loaded language. The style books have changed a very long time ago, Michael, as you and I both know, in media, style books change. So the reporters in the, the big elite media, if you will, the liberal media will will not and cannot use the term pro-life. It's, it's, also, it's always rendered as anti-choice or anti-abortion. They don't usually use the word abortion. They use anti-choice or anti-reproductive services or whatever, but they don't use uh, pro-life because that, that, that has become a pejorative. And if it, if people think long enough about it, they'll think, wait a minute, what, what, let's think about this. On that note, Michael, what's happening with Americans' views in general? We talked about at the beginning a little bit what polls are showing, but you revealed uh, some latest polls. There are the Gallup polls, the, the Gallup annual poll, and that's an interesting uh, revelation. What came up in, in the most recent Gallup poll, I think in July, and uh, as, a, as a voting issue, and I want to talk about that, and also uh, a Notre Dame poll. So put those two together, and, and you said earlier, but I want to hit this again right now. It's, a, it's very important because of the election coming up. How many Americans, what percentage of Americans either identify as pro-life or at least if they're pro-choice, they want some common sense um, limits on, on, uh, um, on, on abortion. And it's certainly one of those is not to have their taxpayer dollars pay for it. But, but what about those two, Gallup poll and the Notre Dame poll and what they're revealing? I mean, sure, the Gallup poll, um, Gallup again has done quite a lot of research mm. on public attitudes toward, toward abortion. And one question that they have asked uh, frequently, and it's an important question, and it doesn't really get the attention it often deserves, is they kind of ask about abortion and how important it is uh, to people who vote. And, um, or when people do vote, how important is abortion as an issue to you? And there are people out there who they define as single issue voters. That mm-hmm. if they were, if they are pro-life, they will only vote for a pro-life candidate that a candidate who supports legal abortion. That's just a deal breaker for them. And there are single issue, quote unquote, pro-choice or pro-abortion voters who would never vote for a pro-life candidate. So regardless of how the polls show on the pro-life, pro-choice question, Gallup has very consistently found that single issue pro-life voters uh, exceed single issue pro-choice voters. So it just comes down to people who only vote mm-hmm. on the issue of abortion. Uh, the number of people who vote pro-life consistently exceeds the number of people who vote pro-choice. And that's been a margin that probably adds up to about four to five percentage points in the national election. So, and lots of elections are decided by four or five percentage points, both nationally and state and local. So, you know, there's always at least nationally an advantage to running as a pro-life candidate, that regardless of what the polls say about pro-life or pro-choice, when it comes down to what's a kind of a deal breaker issue or what's a single issue that most motivates people on the abortion issue, again, there's always more single issue pro-life voters than single issue quote unquote pro-choice voters. And I think that's important to remember. Uh, the media often blames pro-lifers when Republican candidates don't do well. Um, mm-hmm. um, but in reality, if you look at you know, what people talk about as a motivating issue, uh, the pro-life, you know, people who are pro-life just find abortion to be uh, more important, more motivating than you know, people who identify as pro-choice by, by and large. And that's important to remember uh, both this election cycle and in, in future election cycles. Uh, so there's that. Uh, also wanted to kind of comment, you mentioned on uh, the new poll that was released by the McGrath Institute at Notre Dame. And they did some uh, very interesting research uh, that a lot of the surveys on abortion 
tend to answer, ask kind of short answer questions. Are you pro-life mm -hmm. or pro-choice? Do you support a 24-hour waiting period before abortion? Do you think taxpayer dollars should pay for abortions for women on Medicaid? I mean, those questions are fine. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. But with this group of people, a group of sociologists that Notre Dame did, uh, there's a woman named uh, Trisha Bruce, who's again with the McGrath Institute for Church Life. They basically arranged to have long interviews with people. They interviewed about mm. 217 people and had long discussions and really tried to understand kind of why they thought the way they did about abortion. So it wasn't just short answers about public policy or labels. They really wanted to kind of understand why people think the way they do. And I think that, you know, the results were, were, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. I mean, I think one thing they found was that people tend to have fairly nuanced views. Uh, most people mm -hmm. are not activists. You know, even people right. who identify as quote-unquote pro-choice or supporters of legal abortion, they were uncomfortable with late-term abortions. Even some people who identified as pro-life, um, you know, were a little bit hesitant to say abortion shouldn't be a legal option in cases of, of rape or incest or uh, severe field deformity. So uh, that was kind of one thing that's important for those of us in the movement to, to think about, that most people aren't like us. They don't think about sanctity of life issues every day. Um, you know, their views tend to be fairly, fairly nuanced. And, you know, I think there were kind of, as I wrote in my National Catholic Register article, uh, I think there were kind of three takeaways that I think are important to uh, pro-lifers. Uh, first, uh, most people really aren't super knowledgeable about the details of, of abortion. Uh, people don't often know the details of field development uh, the way we do. Uh, most people uh, aren't really familiar with, you know, abortion policy, you know, in their state. Um, you know, they may or may not know if, say, there's a parental involvement law uh, that would require a minor girl uh, to get permission or notify her parents before obtaining an abortion. Um, and, you know, so again, even when uh, these polls were, you know, done or these interviews were done, abortion was a fairly salient issue with lots of states moving to um, place protections in place for unborn children. But most people just didn't seem to, you know, pay close attention to the details. So people often don't know much about abortion itself, field development, the legal status of abortion in this country. People just aren't always super knowledgeable. And sometimes I think get more details, more knowledge about field development, that could be, be useful to us. Uh, another thing that this poll kind of found out is that many respondents were very concerned about the quality of life uh, for women after mm -hmm. an unintended pregnancy. Uh, some people who thought abortion should be legal felt that way because they were concerned that it, the woman may suffer if she's forced to carry a child to term that she doesn't want to, or they thought the child carried to term would be abandoned or neglected in some way. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were concerned about quality of life for both woman and child. And um, it was interesting in these interviews, Again, we don't have the full transcripts. We can only kind of go by the summaries that they gave us. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem that many people discussed abortion regret, which is a big thing. Uh, I think that, again, the, yeah. the testimonies of women who have had Maybe. abortions and regretted it. I mean, the Silent No More campaign's done a great job uh, collecting those testimonies. You know, we need to amplify that. And it doesn't appear that anybody really mentioned pregnancy help centers. And even though we in the pro-life movement support them and help them out, uh, some people just aren't familiar with the resources that we can offer to women facing yeah. 9 out of 10 pregnancies. So I think if more people knew that there is alternatives available, the women don't have to go on their own. There's people happy to offer, whether it be shelter, financial support, counseling, medical care. You know, there are resources out there. And I think if people knew more about it, uh, I think that maybe they would be more sympathetic to a, a pro-life message or a, a pro-life position. And kind of the last thing I think that's important is that most people in the survey didn't like abortion. No one thought this was a good idea. Mm -hmm. You know, even people who 
who identified as supports of legal abortion thought it was a tough decision, whether this should be handled seriously. You know, they didn't seem flippant or callous about it. You know, again, um, you know, so again, I think that, you know, people seemed, you know, very open to discussions and conversations about how to prevent circumstances uh, that might involve finances or relationships that often lead to abortion decisions. So again, I think that, you know, people will seem very interested in trying to find ways to uh, avoid uh, circumstances which, you know, result in many women seeking abortions, whether those situations involve finances, relationships, you know, other circumstances. So again, people don't like it and seem very open and interested in alternatives. And I think these, again, are discussions that pro-lifers should be happy to, uh, to engage in. And not only, yeah, exactly. Happy to engage in as pro-lifers. We, we are, we are that, but Michael, to your point about pregnancy help centers, we really need to be uh, generating that awareness across the country to all the people. Sometimes we think, you know, within our own ranks, you know, of course, if, if people know this, we talk about it all the time, but not, but a whole lot of Americans don't even know about this. They don't even know about the concept of a pregnancy help center or crisis pregnancy center, as some call it, because, but, but they far outnumber abortion clinics in this country. Mm -hmm. And when asked, I've been asked before, challenged by a woman from Europe who I was in a, uh, in a panel and she, she felt abortion uh, clinics were very, very, very needed and necessary for women in these crisis pregnancies. And when I brought up the pregnancy help centers, she asked, well, well where, where, what are they? Where are they? And so I explained what they are, all the services offered to women in those, those, those centers to no, at no cost to her. And the fact that they outnumber abortion clinics. And when she asked, where can you find them? I said, usually pretty close proximity to an abortion clinic. You're going to find a pregnancy help center offering women a true choice. So to that end, we really need all of you listening. We really need to generate awareness of this. And so that's why we're going to keep talking about it going into the elections and beyond, because no matter which way they go, this is an ongoing issue for decades now. And you, Michael New, Professor Michael New, are such a help. These are great issues. We all have to be thinking about them. There's so much more, Michael, we could have talked about. But that'll be next time because it's just ongoing news we hear all the time. So Professor Michael New, visiting prof assistant professor of social research and political science at the Catholic University of America and associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute in Washington, D.C., I keep posting links that Professor New writes, and they are important. It's a good way to get informed. So for now, Professor New, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And all you do in keeping us well informed on these and other issues we didn't even get to yet, but we will. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always enjoy being on your show. Thanks so much. I appreciate you being here. And for everyone else, that's all for now. It's great to spend time with you all. Thanks for tuning in. I ask you to share the link and invite others to join us here in the forum.